0: Well, happy Easter. Turn in your Bibles this morning the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians 4, finding ourselves now entering a new section as Paul continues his theme of what are the things that we have in the new covenant. And he's already explained that we have confidence through the new covenant and because of the hope that we have and we have a boldness because of the new covenant. And we saw last week how he applied that. To ministry with believers. This week he he turns his attention and he's meditating, he's preaching to his own heart. How is it that we function as we minister to lost people as a result of the new covenant in our lives? And so if you have your Bible, 2 Corinthians 4, and we're going to work our way through the first six verses this morning. Paul, writing to the church in Corinth, he says this, therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, We do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves in everyone's conscience, in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers, to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It's late in the Civil War, Union Artillery Battery moves forward uh, to commence their training. They've just received their new 10-pound Parrot rifled gun. They load it. The team of eight loads it. Uh, They've been drilled relentlessly by their lieutenant. And as they light the fuse, suddenly there's a massive explosion. It's intended to send a 9.5-pound projectile hurtling nearly a mile away at over 1,300 feet per second. But its explosion at the barrel itself, immediately kills four of the soldiers, wounds the other four, and kills another two from a nearby artillery battery. It was yet another cannon that had misfired and had destroyed itself. The American government was becoming increasingly aware that they were receiving faulty goods, whether it was uh, rations that were spoiled or horses and mules that were decrepit and ill, or whether it was cannons that had been poorly manufactured and they were exploding when they were being used. They were unable to find a way to stop the bleeding, not just of the battlefields, but of the money that was going out to government contractors. And so for the first time in the United States history, while there had been whistleblower laws around since the 1300s, what became known as the Lincoln laws instituted whistleblower laws here in the United States. They realized that if they were going to find any way to hold these contractors responsible, they were going to have to have somebody on the inside willing to tell on their boss. But who wants to do that at the risk of losing their own job and rejection from friends? And on top of that, if you have been on the inside, you've probably had a part to play in the weakness, in the failures, in the deception. And so how would they function with that, and how could they convince them? And so they instituted these whistleblower laws that would promise monetary wards of up to 15 to 30% in order to incentivize people to do what was right. It's amazing that we have to do that. It's amazing that as a culture, as a world, and it's not just the United States, these whistleblower laws exist really around the world, that we have to so incentivize people to do the right thing to speak truth, to be willing to save lives. Because whistleblower laws, we now know, have come to rescue thousands and even millions of people's lives by whether it's water that has been tainted and no one wants to admit it, whether it's vehicles that explode on impact and the government knows it, whether it's car manufacturers that knew for years that seatbelts would save lives but didn't want to spend a few dollars or even pennies on the dollar in order to save your life or mine, whether it was cigarette manufacturers who knew from the mid 50s that they would kill people with lung cancer, but no one wanted to confess this. What does it take to incentivize people to do the right thing? That really is lying at the core of what Paul is addressing here in these six verses, albeit in a spiritual way. What does it take? What reward would we require? to speak truth to other people? What do we need to incentivize you and I to be bold with the gospel? What do we need to happen in our lives in order to produce the courage that would overcome the fear of rejection for speaking the truth about Christ and the cross to others? That's at the heart of the text. Paul's still answering the question from chapter 2 verse 16 when he thinks about ministry and he asks that question, who is sufficient for these things? Who is sufficient to walk into a crowd of people and speak the truth of Christ? Who is sufficient to sit down with their neighbor over a cup of coffee and call them to Christ? Who is sufficient to share the gospel with a family member who may reject you as a result of it? When was the last time God had so clearly given you an effective open door of opportunity of the gospel, and you shut the door out of fear, out of worry, out of anxiety, out of lack of courage. When we read of Paul, it's important that Corinthians helps us to understand that Paul is not a super saint. Paul wrestled with all of his own weaknesses and fears and struggles In fact, you could even think of the dominant theme of 2 Corinthians being, what's it like to do ministry out of weakness or out of the midst of suffering? And so, again, what we're getting is insight into Paul, the way he preached to his own heart. The things that he would convince himself himself of so that he would do the things God has called him to do. And so, we can look at it and think of it this way this morning. We proclaim the gospel because we have known its mercy and power. I would, I would make this claim this morning that when you and I are overwhelmed with the fear and the lack of faith in that moment when we have a gospel opportunity or even pursuing the relationships for the sake of the gospel and we're afraid to do that and we're afraid to push it to that next level and we're afraid to ask those pointed questions and we're afraid to speak hard truth to people that what you and I have forgotten is with the mercy and the power of God. And so what Paul reminded himself of is as the church in Corinth is rejecting him and, and they're saying some just horrific things about him, right? Like, like you don't preach well and you're a terrible apostle and you suffer because of all your own mistakes and this is all your own fault and you're the problem, Paul. And on top of that, you don't preach very well and you're kind of ugly. And in the face of all that, Paul's asking, how do I go out tomorrow and do this? And Paul thinks mercy and power. We can easily break this specific text this morning down into three sections. But I think it will just help you mentally maybe to track along as we work our way through the verses. Section 1, where does this courage to speak the truth come from? We see that in verses 1 and 2. And so you kind of three couplets that go on here. And then section 2 is the offense of the truth. The offensive nature of the truth itself. That we'll see in that middle passage there of verses 3 and 4. And then lastly, the power of the truth in verses 5 and 6. Ultimately, where Paul will drive his own heart. Again, I ask you, when was the last time you were afraid? Afraid that someone would reject the gospel? Afraid they'd reject you? Afraid they think that you're crazy, wrong, mean, or arrogant? This is the answer from Paul this morning. And so let's look at this first one, first two verses, this first couplet. Paul writes this, Therefore, and so that just helps us to know that he's in this whole flow, right? And there and, and there's visitors with us this morning, and folks that you haven't been able to track with us over the last few few weeks. Chapters three and four are five things that Paul says we have, gifts we have from God as a result of the new covenant. We have boldness, we have confidence in this way, therefore we have. And so this is another one. Therefore, having this ministry, by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we've renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. It's an interesting term here to say mercy. Literally, we, he turns it into this kind of verb form, we've been mercied by God. Uh, my kids, as they're growing up, they, they sit through, we go through various sports, sports, uh, uh my, my son, my youngest son, has played Little League Baseball a couple years. And, and the new thing he started this week was lacrosse. And uh, so you pray for dad. It's, it's okay when he hits other people. I don't like people hitting my kid, right? And lacrosse is basically you run around and whack people with sticks. That's the, that's the game. So, um, so I'm, you know, we, we, he's going to hit harder. That's, that's just how this dad handles it. But, but lots of little kids sports, they have a mercy rule. Now, wherever you're at on the spectrum, I'm telling you mercy rules are a good thing. And if you've ever sat through a U10 baseball game, you would be convinced of it. And if you don't think mercy rules are good, go watch some under 10-year-old baseball. Because you get to the second inning, and it's like 20 to 0, you're all ready to shut that mess down, right? And that's a mercy rule, right? Like, we just lost by mercy rule, and so we ended it great. You know, the kids just get their snow cones, and, and everybody goes home happy. Mercy. It's, it's that kind of thing. We got mercyed is, is probably the way we think about it. And so it's a look to the past that says, I've gotten mercy. Now, so what is mercy, right? So mercy is different from grace. Mercy is God not giving you what you deserve. Um, it's him withholding from you what you've earned. And what we know biblically is that we are all are sinners. We've all sinned We've all come short of the glory of God, and because we're sinners, we're condemned. We're condemned to a physical death, we're condemned to an eternal death. Mercy would be God not giving us that which we have earned, the eternal death that we have all earned. That would be mercy. So mercy is holding back from you what you deserve. So what Paul is thinking is, I got mercied, it was held back for me, that which I deserve. This little team is not as good as that team. It's the second inning. they got six innings uh, of total of baseball to place. they got four left to go, and they're down 20 to nothing. They deserve to get their tails whipped for another four innings. But mercy rule says, no, we're not going to give you all you deserve. Paul is saying this ministry, and it's a word that, that many of us are familiar with, it means to serve. He says, this service that God has given to me, this responsibility, this obligation I'm to steward, I've gotten it out of mercy. So somehow God has not given me what I deserved and instead has given me this. And he sets his heart there. It is to communicate that Paul is convinced he's a man indebted. Paul is convinced he's a man who lives under a claim on his life. This makes people uncomfortable in Bible Belt. It makes them uncomfortable in Bible Belt because they misunderstand when, they, when people tell them that salvation is the free gift of God. It is the free gift of God. You can do nothing to earn it, and you don't deserve it. That doesn't mean it doesn't put any claims on your life once you're saved. And the fact is, your life is not your own. It's been bought with a price. The blood of Jesus Christ, which has afforded God the opportunity to give you mercy. Mercy. And so Paul says, I've been mercied. I owe God. It's an attitude that something is held over him. It's a deep sense of indebtedness for the grace, the undeserved merit of God, the favor. You don't deserve it and I pour it upon you. That's grace. Mercy is you deserve this and I hold this back from you. And Paul, as he contemplates this, that begins to open his mouth to be willing to speak the truth. Therefore, having this ministry... By the mercy of God. Next he says it's, he's courageous and uncompromising about it. That's what the phrase there means, we do not lose heart. Um, it's, it's, not that, um, it's not a phrase about discouragement, it's, it's a phrase about having courage. I don't wilt in the face of my fear. I've told my sons and my daughters as well, I've told her, look for a man who's courageous. I've told my boys, it's my goal to raise courageous men. Uh, courage is not the absence of fear, as we all know, it's action in the face of fear, and so Paul says that mercy somehow drives him that when he is afraid to speak the gospel, he does it anyway. What that means is when you and I are sitting in that coffee shop with a friend that we know desperately needs Jesus, and and the door is there, that, um, that moment is there when we can change the conversation. And it's so simple, it comes in such simple gifts, right? Hey, what did you do this weekend? And your immediate thought is, um, I did a bunch of yard work Saturday, and I went to church Sunday. But I don't know if they go to church, or I don't think they go to church, or I know they don't go to church. The last thing I want to say is I went to church, because then it's going to make this conversation awkward. And so we suddenly talk about the final four and mowing our lawn, because we're afraid. I don't say this to you as one who is unafraid. Paul does not write this as one. How would Paul know this? unless Paul himself experienced the fear of that moment. And so what Paul does, and what I'm commending to your heart and to mine, is this concept. Then in that moment, what we need most is to reflect on mercy. And so Paul says, because of this mercy, I am courageous. I don't lose heart. But then I'm also unwilling to compromise the truth. And he gives this whole list, and it ties back in to the end of chapter 2, where he talks about people that are peddling the gospel. Uh, They soft-sell the gospel for their own ends. And, And we could talk, there's lots of terrible preachers out there right there's lots of really good churches there's lots of really good pastors out there but we all know there's lots of really terrible ones that are in it for the money and how can this make me uh look better feel better have more be more right and and those those guys are operating in Paul's day and so they only speak the truth of the word to the extent that it makes them look good and makes them accepted and and affirms what people think already so that nobody gets mad at them and Paul says I'm unwilling to do that and he rattles off this whole list he says we've renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. He says we refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, to twist it. He, he says, I, I refuse to shy away from saying hard things, from I refuse to close my mouth when it's an inconvenient truth. I refuse to not challenge people on how they are doing life. Faint hearted. And fearful people take refuge from the storms of criticism by avoiding hard things. Now, uh, let's be clear, the way your heart and my heart works about this is we preach a lot to our own heart. And so there comes this uncomfortable moment when I should say something hard or something inconvenient and should bring truth to bear, and I don't want to. So this is what I convince myself. In this moment, I'm actually, I'm not being fearful, I'm seeking peace. Right, right. I'm, I'm, am being a peacemaker here. Um, I, I, I'm not fearful. I, I just realize we all need to get along. Um, now, now, right now isn't the perfect moment, it, but, but, but when there is, I'll do it. This might be a distraction to our relationship. If I say it now, I haven't put enough in the bank with them. And I might lose the chance forever. And I wouldn't want to do that. I mean, I I know God wouldn't want me to do that. I'm at work right now, so this is never the time. Uh, They didn't expect me to have this conversation when they invited me over for a cup of tea. And we'll find all kinds of ways to tell ourselves that we're not compromising the gospel. We'll find all kinds of ways, because I think the reality is at the core, what none of us want to be is a coward. What none of us want to be is who we are. Fearful. Feeling inadequate. Scared. Terrified people. And again, I just want to tell you, there's only one way for Paul to know these things. It's because he himself was wrestling through these things. And so what we like to do then is highlight the things that people like to hear. People like to hear that Jesus loves them, so we'll highlight his love for them. We, 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 we want to tell them he loves all of his children, and he'd want them to be his children, and and he makes no claims upon their life. We want to we highlight anything that won't bother them. And what Paul is telling us is that's what his opponents do. They're unwilling to say hard things. And so our question then would be this. What is the hard truth that Paul is unwilling to avoid that all of his opponents do avoid? In other words, what is... The issue, And there's actually three clues that tell us what it is. And it's providential that we're here Easter morning. And we can know these first by the statements that he makes about what is so offensive. We can understand it second because of the record of Paul of what he emphasized. And third, we'll be able to tell because of what's going on in Corinth. When we combine these threes, I want you to understand here is the offensive truth that Paul is unwilling to avoid that all of his opponents avoid, and that you and I, in moments of fear, find all kinds of ways to avoid. Here it is. The glory of God in the gospel is a crucified Lord rescuing a crucified people. And that's what people don't want to know in here. A crucified Lord rescuing a crucified people. I'd say to you these ways. First of all, in 1 Corinthians, the first letter Paul writes to the church at Corinth, he ends up writing a total of four letters to them, Uh, We only have two that are inspired and, and preserved for us. But in 1 Corinthians, Paul wrote this to them. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. The concept that Jesus Christ is truly God and truly man was astoundingly offensive to the Greek mindset the Greek mindset that wanted to have a pantheon of gods where there's an intense separation between God and man. And, and, And in that sense, we'd say there is a massive separation between God and man. They could not wrap their minds around a religion that said, but God came and poured himself into humanity and died. He didn't die an old man. He was stripped naked, beaten beyond human recognition, and then hung on a tree was so offensive to them. They thought that was crazy talk. Why would you worship somebody like that? To the Jews who wanted the Messiah coming in on the white horse with the sword and wanted him to to destroy Rome and throw out all the oppressors and overthrow and reestablish Israel for Messiah to come? And to be beaten and and to be fully man and to experience this was a stumbling block. They said, I can't get past that. How he he is, even during the life of Christ, they would say, isn't he the son of the carpenter? Isn't this Jesus from Nazareth? Can anything good come from Nazareth? Nobody wanted to wrap their brains around the fact that he would die. When Jesus leads 20,000 plus people out in the wilderness and he takes a little boy's lunch and he feeds them. And, and so this is like a wilderness moment from way back. This is like hearkening back to the nation of Israel traveling through the wilderness and they get manna from heaven and water from a rock. And here's Jesus feeding them in the wilderness. I mean, it's like this is the greater Moses that has arrived. Everybody's like, this is amazing. Jesus goes across the Sea of Galilee. So they all track him across because they want breakfast the next morning. They had a great lunch and dinner. It was, it was full on buffet uh, as one of our guys teaching one morning like how good was the food in the old wilderness it was like quail and manna that's like crispy cream and and chick-fil-a all at the same time and, and so then jesus shows up and he feeds them and it's like the best fish meal and and bread that you could ever have and they're like this is amazing let's get breakfast from this dude they go across the way and and they say give us a sign from heaven it, like you can totally tell what they're saying because they're like moses gave us manna what about you but uh And Jesus looks at them and goes, you got to eat of my body and drink of my blood. And they're like, whoa, crazy man. We're out of here. You're going to die? And routinely through the the ministry of Jesus, you see this cycle of him building a crowd through healing lepers and blind people and and casting demons out. And then he preaches truth to them. And the the truth he preaches to them is, I'm going to die, and if you want to follow me take up your cross and follow die with me and they're like whoa crazy dude no free food i'm a, that's a benny heal some people i'm all about that die to myself to follow a dying god uh uh-uh. uh no go it's offensive to them the concept that jesus christ would die to the gentile mind to the lost man is offensive and so we know that this is one of the things that opponents would have soft-pedaled and that Paul was unwilling to avoid. Secondarily, we can see it in what he emphasizes as he preaches to the Corinthians. Later in 1 Corinthians 2.2, he makes it very clear. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. We can see it, if we fast forward in the New Testament, in the book of Galatians, Paul has this whole showdown with the Jerusalem Council, and he basically says, I don't care who's influential there. This is the gospel. Peter, Peter has twisted the gospel because he's fallen in with a group that wants to add the law to the gospel. And so the the language is fascinating in Galatians, it means he's actually twisted the path. It's a throwback even in the mind when Jesus talks about there's two paths, right? Wide is the path and, and, and available and easy that goes to destruction, but narrow is the way that leads to everlasting life. And so what Paul is saying is Peter is twisting the path when he's trying to add law in that it's something beyond you putting your faith in Christ and turning from your sins and Jesus will save you. Uh, Peter's kind of like catering to the guys that say yeah, it's faith and repentance and getting circumcised and following the Mosaic law and going to temple and paul's like no you're twisting the gospel paul refused at that moment he said if anybody does that let them be anathema to you paul would never back down and he emphasized time after time after time the most offensive element of the gospel itself the good news that jesus christ has died for your sins good friday a couple thousand years ago Jesus hung on a cross for you, for you. He was beaten for you. He was whipped for you. He was rejected for you. He was mocked for you. The Father, the Heavenly Father, turned his face from the Son, his Son, for you. And that offends people. It bothers them. And so we, can, we know by what Paul said, I'm going to preach, what I'm going to emphasize, what I would defend, This offensive nature of the gospel is the death of Christ. And then thirdly, because of what's going on in in Corinth anyway. Because what this culminates in is this whole problem in Corinth of what that means if Jesus was crucified and he is leading and rescuing a crucified people. This is what it means. It means you are called to obey. Because in Philippians chapter 2, it says this. It's, It's a fascinating statement. me read it to you philippians 2 8 in being found in human form he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross you cannot preach christ crucified without preaching obedience for every believer the obedience of christ to the father why does jesus do this well in the garden what does he say not my will, but your will be done. Earlier in his ministry, he says, I didn't come to do my will. I came to do the will of the one who sent me. Philippians, it says he was obedient to the point of death. Uh, in, in Hebrews, I believe, it says that he learned obedience. Now, that's a fascinating term. Did Jesus have to learn to obey? Well, guess what that word uh, in the Greek means? It means he proved his obedience, right? So I, I don't remember what year it was. Some of you guys are Clemson fans. It was the early 80s. Didn't they have like a, um, a, a, a perfect season, right? Right? Is that, That's true, right? right? They had a perfect season. You could have said in September, they're the best college football team. You didn't know it till it was proven by the end of the season, right? That's what Jesus' life did. It proved, it revealed, and the ultimate revealing was death on the cross. So you can't preach Jesus crucified without preaching Jesus' obedience. What does that mean then when you look at someone else? It means you can't talk to them about Christ's calls of the gospel, where Christ looks at sinful people like you and me, and he says, you are a sinner. Look, you know it, and God knows it. And in case you can't figure out that you're a sinner, hey, here's the Ten Commandments, great. Then have you followed them? You've never lied, you've never stolen, you've never lusted, you've never committed adultery in your heart, you've never done it. You've never been so angry at somebody? Never been so angry that you wish you could hurt them? Never? None of these things? And and the reality is we all know that all of us have done, every one of us. And he says, so then the condemnation of the law is death. And he says, but I will save you. Turn from your sin and put your faith in me, and I'll rescue you. I'll pay the price for your sin on the cross. And I'm going to obey, and then he uses this language, so take up your cross and follow me. Jesus says, count the cost of following me. He says, if a man's going to build a house, he figures out if i got the money before I start building the house, because I don't want to start building the house and run out of money halfway through and end up with a a bunch of two-by-fours and plywood, and the house ain't done for a couple years because you look like a fool. He says, so don't consider what it means to follow Jesus because it's going to be hard. He says, the foxes have a place to lay down, the birds got a nest, I got nowhere to lay my head. It's hard to follow me, take up your cross and follow me. So when you preach Christ crucified, you are preaching the offense of Jesus' obedience and his demands of your obedience. That's what people don't want. That's what makes them mad. They're all about free gift. Oh, it's Christmas? Oh, it's, oh salvation's like stimulus check. I didn't do nothing for it, but I just got it in my bank. Instead, Christ has paid the price, and he's bought your life. The question then becomes, what would he have me to do? And Paul, the big issue in Corinth was, guess what? They didn't want to obey. You don't start obeying to get saved. But when you come to Christ, there must be a willingness to obey God in whatever he's going to call you to do whatever demand he places upon your life. And then he graciously will begin a process of change and transformation in your life to make you more and more like Jesus Christ. So as Paul is coming to Corinth, the Corinthians don't want to discipline a guy out of their church who is having an affair with his stepmother. Gross. We're too spiritual to discipline him. We're too loving. Psycho. We use our spiritual gifts to make everybody look at me, to make me feel good, right? Oh, look at me, I can speak in tongues, I can prophesy, I can do this. Hey, look at me, I'm, I'm better than you, I'm spiritual than you. And Paul says, no, your spiritual gift is to serve God and serve others. They come to take communion, and they don't want to eat with the poor people. Got the rich people, got the poor people. So the rich people come, and they put on their whole spread, and some of them are bringing so much legit wine for their communion that they're getting drunk. Like, like, I don't drink, but it's my understanding. you got to throw back some serious wine to get drunk. These guys are getting drunk at communion, and Paul's like, that's not the Lord's table you're celebrating. What? They deal with one another where in their marriages, they come to church, and they don't even want to sit together because for some of of the dear saints there, the sisters in Christ, when they're coming to the Corinthian church, they're feeling like, finally, I am free at last, free at last, and I can do my own thing. And then you got other people that are marrying and getting divorced and just remarrying people and they're trading wives like, oh, this is good. I, you know, you, you were last year's model. Time to refresh. And he's like, that's not how marriage rolls. And then you got other people saying, don't ever get married. Jesus wouldn't want you to get married. And Paul's like, no, marriage is a good thing. You still get married. The other people saying, if marriage is so good, let's sample the goods before we buy the product. He's like, no. So Corinth has got a mess. Like, you're just like, are you kidding me? Yes, that is the Corinthian church. Doesn't it sound like I just preached about the American church? So it's the Corinthian church, and Paul says you need to obey. And that made them mad. Just like, just like, if in this moment we were to pause, we were to ask, what was the last time the Spirit's conviction rested on your heart? And a call to obey Christ. And so right here in the text would be to share the gospel with someone. And you didn't do it. But maybe it's beyond that. Maybe it was like you needed to ask someone's forgiveness. And you didn't do it. You kind of played, maybe they got over it, and so I don't need to repent of what I did. Or you were angry with someone in a sinful way. Or you've been wrestling with lust and failing, and you were in bondage, and the Spirit's conviction has come, and you know you're called to bay, and you're like, Mm-mm. You see, we dare not live in a glass house and throw rocks at the Corinthians. But somehow, somehow, to be very honest with you, it's my job to break my glass house and yours so that Jesus can build it. And so the offense here is obedience. We proclaim the gospel because we have known his mercy and power. So now he, he digs into the offense of the truth even more in the next section. Because he wants us to understand how is this working in people's hearts and lives. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, to the dying. He's talking about lost people. So he, what he's saying here, to be very clear, is my gospel is so clear that if you don't get it, it's a you problem. That's not giving him an out. He's just owning the theological reality of people's spiritual condition. In their case, the god of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. The gospel was so offensive some of our earliest graffiti 200 AD in Rome they found this inscription in a house Alexamenos and, and the title of the graffiti is Alexaminos Worships His God. And in case you cannot see it, they took the head of a donkey and replaced the head of Christ with it. This is some of the first graffiti we have. It's amazing. Some of the first depictions we have of crucifixion. Because it's so offensive, it's so distasteful of people to think about following a, a God who would die for them. And they think it's ridiculous. And so Paul uses a whole pack of words to describe the offensive message that he preaches. If we were to go down through the text, in in verse two, he says it's God's word and it's the truth. He says it's the gospel in verse three. He says it's the light of the gospel in verse four. He says it's the glory of Christ in verse four. He says it's Jesus as Lord in verse five. And finally, he says it's the knowledge of the glory of God in Christ in verse six. With each one of these, he says, I'm speaking in an open statement or very clear way about the truth. Again, it's boiled down to this truth. The glory of God in the gospel is a crucified Lord rescuing a crucified people. And so I've talked about why that's so offensive in some ways to our culture and why that's so offensive to their culture. But let me just press it further. It's an offensive glory. You see, because the cross of Christ and the cross of the gospel shatters the worldview of a lost person in two dominant ways. Two dominant ways, here's the offense, in love and in its power. The cross shows us love because while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. remember as an arrogant teenager looking at my parents at one point and saying, I didn't ask to be born. I don't know why teenagers say that it's like i just talking about me like that is like the dumbest thing i ever said guess what they didn't ask for some god rejecting belligerent mouthy teenager either but here we are right and so it's offensive to someone to be told jesus has drowned you in his love by dying for you it shows the glory of God. It shows the majesty of God. Glory is to put God and his person on display. And Jesus on the cross puts his love on display, and that offends them. And it also shows his power. God says, I- I'm going to look past who you are and what you deserve, and I'm going to take on your sins. I'm gonna take on the wrath of God for your wickedness. I'm gonna take on the full punishment of your sins and I'm gonna pay the price and that is the power of God to rescue you. And so it's offensive because you're being told this, you're being told you're not very lovely and Jesus loved you and you're incredibly weak and Jesus has the power to save you. That really bothers people because people at their core wanna believe I'm actually a very loving and likable person. It's amazing, like some of the most people, you know, there's all kinds of conditions out there, right? Well, OPD is a condition. Uh, If it's not in the statistics and diagnostics manual, fifth edition, that's what psychologists use to define, it ought to be OPD, obnoxious personality disorder. We all met these people, right? But they all convince that they're nice and sweet and lovely. Like you ever talk to somebody like that? I mean, they got some serious blinders on. They got no social skills, right? But they convince themselves they're nice and sweet. So you go and have a conversation with a friend, a coworker, a neighbor, and say, you know, at the end of the day, you're actually not a very lovely person, but Jesus loved you so much. That offends them. To look at someone and say, you're actually a very weak person because in our, we live in a culture you're not supposed to be weak. We celebrate strength. We celebrate strength emotionally, physically, spiritually. Strength, be strong, be strong, be beautiful. And now you're told you're weak and you can't rescue yourself. So the offense of the cross is what, exactly what the glory of God is. It's his love and his power and we got to tell people you're unlovely and you have no power. And that irritates them. It's sacrificial love while they're a sinner. It offensively says you didn't deserve, earn, or were worth the love of God. It's Christ obeying the Father that declares that there's something far more valuable than you. Jesus came primarily to hang on the cross to show the glory of God. That bothers people because it means it ultimately primarily wasn't about them. It's Christ the perfect one that had to die that shows that they are less than perfect. It's Christ exalted because the cross comes before the crown, which reminds them that God will judge them one day. Paul says it's not it's it's the thinking, it's you're lost, you're blinded to this. And on top of your own blindness, I mean it's The best description I could be like this is if a person is walking through life and they're blind, they can see nothing, right? Nothing. And what Paul's saying, because you're perishing, you're blind to the glory of Christ, the light of the glory of Christ, you can't see these truths. And on top of that, the God of this world has his hands over your eyes. I mean, it's like double blindness. And it starts to lead you to ask the question, Then what hope is there for these people? Frederick Nietzsche, the the German philosopher, atheist, I think he was so on point and so revealing of the way a lost man thinks about Jesus. He said this, quote, this principle of death, he's talking about Jesus on the cross, this principle of death is anti-natural, symbolizing consciousness of sin and foreboding authority of God, imposing a morbid principle of life. Now some of you are like, Huh? Don't feel bad. Let me let me let me unpack that, translate that, because I got to read that code about twenty times before I just read it to you, right? So a crucified Jesus in the gospel goes against what we want. It informs us that we are sinners and that we will have to give an account for our lives that makes us have to think too much about who we are and what we do. What Nietzsche was rec- recognizing was this, if you believe in a crucified Jesus, it actually makes you take account of your life. And this is where many people get discouraged. You see, sometimes in that moment, when we should share the gospel with someone, we don't do it, we're afraid, we're timid. And sometimes, sometimes, we take this theological truth that they are blind to their sin, and the God of this world is blinding them, and we say, what's the point anyway? Why should I throw my relationship out the window when they're going to reject it anyhow. Why should I risk it? And so in response to that rejection, people are tempted to soft sell this truth. Downplay these themes of their wickedness. Downplay the call to repentance. Downplay the lordship of Christ. Downplay the call to repent of your sins and put your faith in Christ alone. Downplay the high cost of discipleship. I once had a friend who is a pastor, a preacher, And he literally told me this. He said, when I preach the gospel, I don't make much of repentance. Of the call for someone to turn from their sin. I don't make much of that because it offends people. And he said this to me. And if they get really saved anyhow, they'll repent anyway. You yellow heretic. Why would we ever think that we can mask the truth of Christ and yet also love them. And so, how in the world, in the face of this, does Paul in verse 1 say he doesn't lose heart? And so, that leads us to the last two verses. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. With ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. First of all, Paul goes back to this concept, I have been mercied. We don't proclaim myself, but Jesus Christ and ourselves as your servants. Paul understands he is the doulos, the slave is the word there. Jesus has bought me. You see, a lot of people mistakenly believe that they're sinners and they don't want to become a slave of Christ, a follower of Christ. They don't want to be under the demands of Jesus put upon their life, not realizing everyone's a slave. You're either a slave to your sin or you're a follower of Christ. There is no middle ground. You're either bound by your desires, what you want, your faulty thinking, your twisted sinfulness, or you are rescued and redeemed and being transformed. And so Paul reminds himself that he's been mercied. Paul understands that this message that he's preaching with its acceptance or rejection is not about him it's about Jesus how can you and i increase our awareness of the mercy that we are under i'm going to give you a novel approach here it is here it is you ready how can i live in a greater awareness of god's mercy that will help fuel me in obedience ready this is going to be very it's not you're not going to be happy about this go share the gospel Now, how would that teach you and I about mercy? Because as you share the gospel with people, and you experience at times, I'll give you both sides. Let's talk about rejection first. As you experience people rejecting the gospel, you're going to be reminded real fast of some vital truths. You didn't get saved because you were prettier than other people. You got saved because of his mercy. You didn't get saved because you're smarter than other people. You got saved because of his mercy. You didn't get saved because you're more righteous than other people, because you're better than other people, because you're more moral than other people, because you grew up in church and other people didn't. You got saved because of mercy. And as you share the gospel with people, get this now, who are better than you, brighter than you, smarter than you, prettier than you, more moral than you, and you see them reject the crucified Jesus, it will remind your heart, there go I, but for the mercy of God. And then on the other hand, as you share the gospel through broken language and trying to get it out there, and you're stumbling over your words, and you're trying to remember uh, some the Romans road, and you're like, um, and Jesus died for you, and you don't want to mess it up, and you're scared, and you're like, God, give me power, and the Spirit's giving you words to say, and you're like, and and. And so you need to turn from your sin and put your faith in Jesus and, and, and God will enable you. But I just don't know if I can get right. Guess what? You don't have to get washed before you get a bath. And, and so Jesus will wash you clean. And, but I don't know if I'm going to be able to give up these different things. Listen, turn to Jesus and his power will save you and his power will change you. And you're telling somebody and you're like, boy, I just want to know. And then all of a sudden they say, can I do that right now? And you're going to be like, I mean... I mean, did did Goliath just die? I mean, did I just go walking through the furnace? Is this a Jesus? And you're going to be like stunned because you're going to see God pour mercy on somebody. So whether they reject or whether they accept, nothing will teach you more about mercy than sharing the gospel with others. And so I think a novel approach to teach our hearts about mercy is to become gospel sharers. Your prayer will become, oh God, thank you for your mercy. Please show mercy to them weakness in evangelism only makes you weaker (laughs) well well, in the midst of the rejection you see god's power at play but then secondarily it's because we've experienced power it's the last verse verse six paul says this for god who said let light shine out of darkness how does paul help his own heart when he realizes i'm sharing the gospel with people who are blinded and they got they, they got somebody holding their hands over their eyes anyway he reminds himself of this, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Paul revels in the power of God. Now, there's a fair amount of debate. You, you read, if you read some time in commentaries, you'll find this. There's some, some debate here. What's Paul quoting? Because notice he says, God who said, let light shine out of darkness. So he, he's apparently quoting God from somewhere. And we got three options. And so everybody's like, which one is it and what is he talking about? So one is from Genesis when God spoke into darkness and said, let there be light. Maybe that's what Paul has in his mind. And so Paul is reflecting on the power of God when there is nothing but darkness and uh, the world is without form and void. And then God says, let there be light. And suddenly in the midst of darkness, light blazes. Like Paul is thinking the same way as I'm talking to my lost friend, my lost uh, sibling, my lost child, my lost parent, my lost spouse, and I'm talking about the gospel, and I feel like I'm preaching into a valley of dead man bones. I feel like I'm speaking into the darkest of night. Suddenly God awakens their heart, and it's like he says, let there be light. Maybe that's what Paul's thinking. That's what some say. Then others say, maybe he's quoting from Isaiah 9.1, which we see the ultimate fulfillment in the gospel of John with Jesus the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it, speaking of when Jesus comes into the world, right? There's been 400 years of silence, absolute darkness, uh, they're under the Roman uh, boot, and, and they can't get freedom, and the Messiah comes. And there's a blazing star that shines down on a little manger, and light has come into the world, and the darkness cannot overcome the light, And even at the death of Jesus, oh my word, Good Friday 2,000 years ago, folks, on an afternoon, the whole world was plunged into darkness that they could feel. At the death of the sun, and that was Friday, but guess what? Easter was coming. And the darkness could not overcome the light. So some say maybe that's what Paul's talking about. Jesus Christ coming to the world. And then thirdly, some say, it's Paul's own conversion, that's what he's thinking about. He, he's thinking about that moment when he's on the road to Damascus, and he thinks he sees clearly, but when he's exposed to the light of the glory of God, he's blinded physically, he then travels, and then God sends his servant, his kind servant, to, to Saul at the time, who goes and he prays over him, and his eyes are open, scales fall off his eyes, and he's, his eyes are open to the light, and maybe in that moment, maybe in that moment, that servant of God was quoting to him from part of his vision from Jesus, and he was saying, let light shine out of darkness and Paul is talking about when he himself was converted and so what Paul is reminding himself when he is discouraged preaching the gospel to people that are rejecting is that I was a rejecter and my heart was dark and I got the power and so if God can powerfully save me he can powerfully save them. So which one is it? Well, Steve's opinion time. Paul and I have spent some time together. We spent some time in Romans together. We spent some time in Corinthians together. We spent some time in the pastoral epistles together. And I've never found Paul to be intentionally vague, except for when he's using his vagueness to make a point. I'm going to tell you what it is. It's all three. It's all three. Because it is the power of God to overcome in the darkest of night and when there is no hope. You turn to the light of Christ alone. Now, now I know your, your objection. I know your objection to the sermon. If you're a believer this morning, you don't feel very powerful. Particularly when it comes to facing rejection like Paul was facing. Particularly when you've got a pastor here calling you to live and share and show the gospel. In fact, you feel very weak and you feel very incapable. Well, it's a good thing it's Easter Sunday. It's a good thing we have Paul. For where on earth does this confidence, this boldness, and this ministry come from? Later in Corinthians, Paul's going to say this. He was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. Jesus Christ was crucified in weakness. That was Friday. But Sunday was coming. You and I come in weakness before God. And we walk in power. And so I will switch up your main takeaway this morning. It's not just that you have known, but we proclaim the gospel because we know its mercy and its power. You see, we walk in resurrection power because Easter happened. And the power that you and I need, the words that you and I need, the glory that needs to be shown is the resurrected Jesus. And so I call you to join on mission with a fearful and timid Paul to understand you have this ministry by the mercy of God and by the power of the resurrected Jesus. If you don't know him today, may God's light shine into your dark heart and may you come to see and know him